Yeah, so Helen Levitt, for me, she's actually someone whose work I didn't discover until recently. Um, actually, like uh, over a year and a half ago when I was at Dashwood Books, I just found one of her books and bought it. And that was really my introduction to her work. I probably saw a few images online over the years, but yeah, she's she's pretty recent as uh, an artist for me to, to dive into. What about you? Uh, I've been familiar with with her work from the from like the early two thousands. Oh, okay, really? Yeah, I feel like the, there were like lots of books on hers around, um, and she's like just been one of the tenants of documentary photography. She's just like one of the big dogs in the in the field of photography. So I feel like her name has always been around. Yeah, I, you know what though? I feel like her name doesn't get mentioned as often as uh, other people around that time period who well, did street photography. She doesn't really have, like... She has a very solid archive of work mm. and photograph lots of different things, but she doesn't have quite the sensational, maybe exciting lean that some of the other famous documentary photographers have. Okay. Like, we'd have to go through people to be... But, you know, like, Bruce Gilden's, like, very in your face. Yeah, yeah. Joel Meyerowitz has, like, these very, like, poetic, light-based, yeah, form-based things. Helen Levitt's more grounded, I would say. Okay. And is still, like, aesthetically really great. Yeah, And yeah. has lots of, like, wonderful poetic images, but maybe isn't as sensational. I don't know what other word to use. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, because we covered... Carrie Winogrand and like his street photography is kind of what you think of when you think of something sensational, something very dynamic happening within the frame or these like once in a lifetime images sort of. Um, but because there, there, there aren't many women who are like renowned documentary photographers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. That's something we'll talk about later, but yeah, that is true. Um, I, I was just, kind of looking over more of her work and it, it seems like the theme of um, children especially is like that's kind of her signature thing is uh, photographing children and working class neighborhoods playing together out in the street and um, so, so especially maybe, black and white maybe the gendered lean is applicable here I mean like I don't know how many like definitely male photographers who photographed in the public space have lots of photos of children but oh okay yeah maybe that's true. being someone that looks like your mom yeah yeah is more friendly to being able to hang out with kids in the street right yeah that's a good point yeah well actually that might have pigeonholed her a little bit too like we don't know what her archive looks like we only know what images they edited right true for the book yeah Books. i mean there's um like i said children playing that that's definitely a, a big theme in her work but there are also other photographs of um like older men or middle-aged men hanging out but um definitely just like everything street life yeah yeah so to give some quick background on her she was born in bensonhurst brooklyn and the hearst yeah <laughs> in 1913 i know she was like second. damn she, she was old yeah she's yeah. not still with us is she <laughs> No, she died in 2009. Oh, okay. Rest, yeah. Rest in peace. Um, but 1913, yeah, so she's like a year younger than Gordon Parks, to put it into okay. context. And um, her parents were like second-generation Russian-Jewish immigrants. And so Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, dropped out of high school, and she worked for a commercial photographer at the time. But she became serious about photography in the 1930s. So she admired Walker Evans and Cartier-Bresson, and she uh, took classes and events hosted by the Manhattan Film and Photography League. Have you ever heard of no. that before? Yeah, so I guess that was something that was around in the 30s. But I found out through the Manhattan Film and Photography League, she met Cartier-Bresson. I know there's an Art Students League. Oh, okay. Which has, like, resources and classes and, like, an institution where you can, like, be a member. So maybe it's something similar. Yeah. Um. And then she also eventually met and worked for Walker Evans. Evans, she uh, printed some of the images of Evans' 1938 exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art and worked with him on a series of 
photos taken in New York on subways between uh, 1938 and 1941. I wonder if she helped with Walker Evans' subway project. It seems like it, yeah. This was. uh, I wonder in what capacity. Yeah, she, like, I, I couldn't film or making contact sheets or I know she helped to print the images for the, the MoMA exhibit with the subway. I, I don't know exactly what she did when she helped him. Um, but there's even a photograph of her that Walker Evans took that I saw online that was on the subway. Uh, so anyway, her own work was included in the Museum of Modern Arts Photography Department's inaugural exhibition in 1940. So that was the first time. Okay photography department did an exhibition and she had her first solo exhibition at the MoMA in 1943. So, um, yeah, so again, she got serious about photography in the thirties and then had her first solo exhibition at the museum of modern art in 43. And then from the the late forties to the seventies, she worked in filmmaking mainly on documentaries where she was uh, like an editor, cinematographer, and director. I know she worked on one documentary about street life. Back when you were creative and there was lots of jobs for you to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know she worked on one documentary about street life that won first prize at the Venice Film Festival. You're going to work in the talkies, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, there aren't really like interviews with her. I, I could only no? find... yeah. I could only find like quotes attributed to her by people that were interviewed about her work, but she was largely kind of, um, I wouldn't say that she was reclusive, but for whatever reason, um, there really isn't a, a lot of like media out there with, with her doing interviews. She was media shy. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, she, she died in 2009. So there's definitely time when her work, it seems like in the seventies during the, the feminist movement, her work became even more appreciated. Uh, but for whatever reason between then and, and her death in the late two thousands, she didn't really do a lot of interviews or appearances. That's too bad. Yeah. She's she, has she ever had like a big retrospective show or anything? Uh, yeah. So I saw, um, I believe it was in San Francisco where she had her first like national show. Those usually travel. Yeah. Uh, I forget what year that was. Are they all like small pictures and, and like frames with lots of thick glass on them. That that's my critique of the museum. Oh, they're like, do you like photographs? Oh, come come look at it, and we'll put it behind an inch of glass for you. Oh, <laughs> oh, you do you usually hold them? Right. Uh, oh no no. Now they're treated like way too precious an object. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I love photography books because you know you're in a sense holding the images in your hand and yeah. you get as close to them as you want but it's interesting because like i'm sorry i'm tangenting but it's like at a certain point like it's sort of like i don't know when the last time you went to a fine art photography show was but mm. like i feel like helen levitt and people from that area and cardi brisson like you would have gotten 20 30s big biggest like they're printing small yeah 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 like they don't like occupy the 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 space the same way that like fine art photography is treated in museums at this moment Mm -hmm. and i and i wonder if that's like one of the reasons that it doesn't you know what i mean like you can't like like icp does a decent job of it but like let's see them try to do it with somebody old i mean they they, they did it at like older at the old place better or, or like there's examples of it at the old place you know like like Robert Kappa or something, Frank Kappa, Frank Kappa, Robert Kappa. Um, Frank Kappa is a musician. That's Frank Zappa. Yeah, Frank Capra was the director. He made It's a Wonderful right. Life. Yeah. Um, but it's like, you know, they, they'll do some wall-sized prints, but for the most thing, everything is this, like, smaller than a newspaper photograph that you yeah. have to walk up, which adds some intimacy, intimacy to it, but then at the same time, it's behind this huge thing of glass. Right, yeah. Yeah, I like, remember... The antithesis of photography is how we show photography. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I think it was 2017 or 2018, the Met had a retrospective of uh, William Eggleston's Los Alamos, and I was surprised at how yeah, small di- some of the photos were. Yeah, I mean, like, it makes sense. They're 35 millimeters. Like, they can't really be printed that much bigger. But like, then why does the book seem to, like, hit us in the heart? Yeah. The museum seems to, like, miss the mark. 
Yeah, well, it's like that's a space that you're supposed to interacting with pictures. Like it should be much more invigorating. Yeah, I, I think with the book, if it's a if it's printed around the same size, you can hold the book as close to your right, face as it. you want. Whereas, obviously, at a museum when you're walking around, and then and in comparison to the other photographs you're looking at or other exhibits, it's going to look really small and you can't get too close to it. It's like one of the conflicts. It's like one of the conflicts that like kind of exists with fine art photography where it's like the space that art, that fine art is exhibited in is much more conducive to having paintings, giant paintings and sculpture in it. The sculpture sits in the middle of the room. It commands all your attention. You walk in towards it. There's white walls on the along of it. There's not distracting things around it. The painting is floor to ceiling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we kind of turn photography into that. And I I think one of the fallacies with it is that like we then put it behind glass. Like show me a museum exhibition where you get to handle the prints and that's a museum exhibition that people will not forget. Like Tillman's exhibition gets kind of close to that because it's like the prints aren't framed. I would say maybe like the amount of it and how they laid it out and some of the images they chose just detracted from the effectiveness yeah. of the Tillman's exhibition, but that's a closer rendition of it. Okay. And like when he lets the prints curl at the bottom, I'm like, oh, he's showing us it's a print. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a painting. It's not like coming to be like put in a collector's vault to be able to survive 300 years, which is how like most of the shit is presented. You know what I mean? Like if you pr- print something from a museum show, it like like unless your practice is actively anti-archival, it's going to have to come archival ready. You know what I mean? Like, like Tillman's had examples of like images being printed on newspaper and shit like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing that, but like that thing's going to fall apart in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I tangent and sorry. Let's go back to Helen Levitt. No, no, actually I found uh, something. So she had a, a second solo exhibit called projects, Helen Levitt and color where she did, some color slide work and that was at the museum of modern art in 1974 um and also i found more recently uh at the photographer's gallery in london from october 2021 to 2022 she had a retrospective her color is pretty recent is notable yeah And, and we should definitely talk about it it's like still got a lot of the great aesthetics that the black and white does but like doesn't it look a little flat to you? You know what I mean? Like a lot of work from this era does that. Like maybe it's because it's the forties or no, there's no color photography in the forties really. But like, you know what I mean? Like when you look at an Eggleston photo, you're like, holy shit. Like that thing like pops and pulls you in. Yeah. And like talks to you on these different levels of like color and saturation and the hell and the, a lot of the photos from the Helen Levitt era don't do that. Yeah, well, from... They're from both what, shooting with Leicas. It has to be the film type. I know she shot on color slide film. So I, I'm assuming that was probably Kodachrome. But the, the way it was like processed and printed was probably pretty different. You, you don't think the Levitt family basement had a moisture problem? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, also, I, I don't think she used the dye transfer... Right, right. It's like the, it's a different film and processes. Yeah, yeah. Right, because the dye transfer is like one of the best color prints you can ever have. Right. Also, I found out um, much of her archival. Yeah, supposedly, much of her work in color from fifty nine to sixty was stolen in uh, nineteen seventy. Like by art thieves or like I, it was just a burglary in her oh, apartment. Man, yeah. That's why you don't keep negatives in the safe. Yeah, <laughs> but um, in two thousand five, she had a book. Uh, called slideshow the color photographs it's, it's one of my worries it. man where i'm like I'm, someone's gonna come rob my apartment and like take the like take you know take any just leave the negatives in the hard drives yeah. <laughs> i've thought about writing a note yeah you don't want to be... steal this <laughs> yeah just leave a sign for potential robbers um <laughs> but uh the leica the broken leica is on the table yeah um Oh, you know what? Actually, I, I forgot. So she had sciatica in the 90s, and carrying her Leica became difficult, so she switched to small automatic contacts. That was in the 90s. Though. But mo- most of her famous work is from, like, the 40s through the she 70s. She start shooting for Urban Outfitters. <laughs> right. <needed> autofocus. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But, uh, okay, so for people who maybe aren't as familiar with her work, I would say that, you know, New York City, Manhattan, that's almost like a character in her work, definitely. And um, there's, it's interesting because it, again, it's, it's street life. And like we said, it's mainly children, but every now and then you, you get, you know, just different adults in working class or poor neighborhoods. But I would say that, uh, man, it's, it's hard to describe because again, they're not, as you were saying, they weren't like sensational photographs of just crazy stuff happening in New York. It's, it's almost like she is just sort of celebrating like the everyday life of New York, especially with and like the visual poetry. And yeah. It. Yeah. It's very lyrical. I would say there's like a Brisson decisive moment in it. Okay. Like there's definitive moments in it that like, yeah. Elevate the situation to be more than just an observation. Right. And there's tension too. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, so just looking at her photos and uh, looking at the dates on them, for example, one of my favorite photos, it's uh, it's in the street and a group of children playing on the sidewalk. And there are these two boys that have what's like a like a mirror frame where the mirror isn't in it. And another boy is riding his little, like, looks like a little bicycle. Um, but anyway, this was in 1942 and it's a, a mixture of like black and white kids playing on the street. Probably Lower East Side. Yeah, well, I, I know guess Lower East Side. She shot a lot in Yorkville and Harlem and the Lower East Side as well. So, okay. Um, yeah, Harlem's gonna be one of my other guesses. Yeah. Yeah, I bet Yorkville at that time had like a that would be like really East, like seventies and eighties. Yeah, I believe she lived in that area, like the Upper East Side before the seventies or maybe even sixties. Like the farther East you went the more rougher it got. Like mm-hmm. My grandma grew up in the, in the eighties uh, on the East side. Oh, okay. And like the, and to think she grew up in Yorkville actually in yeah. the forties. I wonder if she knows who Helen oh, wow. Lovett is. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, the, like it was kind of, it got, got spicier the farther away you got from Lexington and Madison. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause today that, that area, Yorkville, it's a really nice family area. Very, very quiet. Same thing in the lower East side. You, you ever mm-hmm. heard that? Like, a you're okay. B you're right. C not so good. D, oh no, D, I never dead. heard that. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably messing up the. Yeah, but they had a whole thing for it. Sorry, New York stuff. Yeah, no, it's again her her work is very New York, and um, just looking at these images, you can kind of take it for granted now. But again, there's there's an image of a, a kids dancing in the street, and it's a little black boy and a little white girl who's in her dress, and this was taken in 1940. And, um, again, these aren't really images you would see during that time period. Also, these are sort of working class neighborhoods, but it's not as if she's going out of her way to document, you know, the, the terrors of poverty or anything like that. She's just showing people living their life and and having fun while living in these neighborhoods. It's interesting to make an image that has like the potential to be really, really weighted in race relations yeah, and like um, then be able to like have a, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Keep going. Uh, no. Well, I mean, it is weighted in race relations. I, I would imagine that she was aware of what she was photographing. Here it is. It, it's like, all right. So like, we're debating it from our 2020. We're looking at it from our 2023 perspective. Yeah. Like a lot of these things, like the interesting politics and the dynamics that would have existed probably would have been when this image went to a magazine, you know, or when Helen Levitt's image was going to be featured in a magazine and the internal politics of that magazine and being able to manage the race relations of an image. Cause if someone had published this on the cover of life, that would have had a huge effect on culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I know that her work started getting attention in magazines. Um, the I, I racial gatekeepers of imagery. The, ra- the right. imagery gatekeepers and their racial criteria. Yeah, and also I think there's something about it being children as opposed to right. if, you know, it was the 1940s and she's taking a photo of 
people from two different races that are adults dancing. That's a different type of right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a sexual statement to it. As yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but because because usually children are a hard thing to photograph. Can you think of a contemporary image that would have children in it? Like hmm. that would works well. Yeah, I almost feel like children are like somewhat off limits to photograph in some ways. I mean, ethically, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, but like, like we saw a lot of kids playing in the playground, right? In like the seventies and eighties street photography. Yeah. No, that's a well. That brings up a good point because, um, you know, some there are a few critics. Some critics said that her work was intrusive or apolitical. But as far as intrusiveness. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, we're talking about children being photographed by a complete stranger and then those photographs going on to appear in exhibits and books. And um, and then the, these are children that were mainly from like a working class or poor background. So the question of consent and agency and that type of thing can come up Um and advice hmm. if you want to photograph a child in the public space go find their parent and ask permission right yeah especially i mean today that would be definitely what you would do and and also i think back then you know in the, in the 40s and 50s i don't think parents were really wondering okay where is this photo gonna go you know what i mean parents weren't really wondering where their kids were <laughs> yeah they're like, is my is my boy down to five cigarettes a day? Yeah. He hasn't stolen any of my booze? Okay. Yeah. Go play with this knife outside with your friends. But also to put into perspective, in those days, you know, in the 40s, if someone had a camera, they were, they were seen as a serious professional person. Right, right totally. Uh, this was before consumer cameras were really a thing. Right, right. I, I think the Brownie Jr. is like the 50s. Yeah, probably. Um, and so... I think if you you see someone point. with the camera who's pointing it at you, you're probably feeling special and and feeling like for whatever reason you're in good hands or, or who knows, maybe this person will make you famous. That's that might be what was going through people's minds. But again, with her photographs, I mean it it, it doesn't seem like my worth as a photographer has gone down in the public space because I can no longer make people famous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find even today, uh, we talked about this earlier on earlier episodes. If you have a film camera, that means something more today than, than right. But uh, that's like to like people who know what a film camera is. I don't know. I found when I would go around photographing people, um, they like, I don't know that like the fact that it was a film camera made them feel like more special, I, I suppose, or feel like, Oh, this person must know. I've been doing or that he's serious about it. Some funny interactions with people. Oh, really? Where, where they're like, let me see it. I'm yeah. Like, it's film. And they're like, let me see it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, here's the back of the camera. Right. Yeah. I had that happen <laughs> once. You can't see it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, for Helen Levitt with all these children around, um, yeah, it does raise a question about, okay, is this intrusive or exploitive to photograph children who, who don't know any better, uh, especially back then when they wouldn't be wondering, all right, where is this going to end up? You know, whereas now I, I think even little kids are probably think, Oh, okay, this will go on like TikTok or Instagram or something. If you take a photo of them. Right. Right. Images are, are like instantly. Yeah. A part of things now. Right. But I mean, kids back then they didn't, they weren't probably thinking about exhibits or magazines or anything like right, that. They're probably thinking about like baseball cards and chewing gum. Yeah. Um, Stick ball. But the other thing is, all right, so there's a woman with a camera who's shooting in the streets all the time and she's, she's shooting for decades and that's just not something you really hear about. And, Again, in the the 30s, to be a, a woman in New York City and decide I'm going to just go all in and, and photographing street life, uh, that's a pretty kind of singular experience, I would say. 
Um, I, again, there aren't really a lot of interviews with her, but she seems like a really tough person. That's the the image I, I get from her. And right. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to be on the public space like that day after day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. She's a New Yorker. She knows yeah. how to handle herself <laughs> out there. Yeah. Uh, also. I brought this up before we start recording. So she took a lot of photographs of children's chalk writing, and you can see some of that in her collections. Public mark makings. Right. And um, that essentially was, you know, just graffiti back then. And, and it seems like she was one of like the first people to really document graffiti in a serious way. So can you think of, of anyone else who... Well, who did that? Well, it's interesting because, like, I th- the first thing I think of is Walker Evans, actually. Oh, photo- really? Who would photograph? I-, I think I remember some like hobo drawings he photographed. Um, he also photographed lots of textures mm-hmm. that, like, sort of have a graffiti element to me a little bit. You know, it's like a texture in the public space that, yeah. that like, is disruptive to the, um, the, you know, Disruption may not be the right word for 1940s public mark making. That's more of like a contemporary graffiti. Yeah, yeah. But like, um, you know, it's a, it's a texture that's different than the wall, and he got really interested in it. So, I, I mean, I, I feel like that probably spoke to Helen Levitt too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, I, I can't. I can't really think of people who photographed gra- graffiti that early. Like, there's probably people who photographed cave drawings. Okay. In like yeah. a series from like a sort of similar era. Right. But like you think about it, it's like who cares what children are writing on the wall is literally probably what everyone's thinking. Yeah. And well, it's chalk too, so. Exactly, yeah. It's that's different from, you know, spray paint, which is obviously I wonder what year spray paint was invented. <laughs> that's a good question. Probably in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I found something out so uh in 37 she was teaching art classes to children for the for New York's federal art project. And when she saw the chalk drawings, she began to photograph these for her own creative assignment with the federal art project. And then later they were published in 1987. Uh, it's called in the street chalk drawings and messages, New York city, 1938 through 48. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously like the type of graffiti that people start to see in the seventies were spray painting walls and subways. That's, that's very different from chalk drawings, but even still, you know, it, it's technically, you know, defacement of public property, but she saw the artistry in it. I don't know if it was looked at quite like that then. Cause it's like chalk and it's children and they draw on the ground, you know, so mm, the super okay. might be like, don't, don't chalk on my building. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. like, you know, people are still writing graffiti. You can even see it in some of her, it's like mostly like pro sports team or, or like, you're, there's a one you're nuts scratchy yeah <laughs> like like you're crazy right um yeah i don't know i don't know it's also like my knowledge she has a fair amount of graffiti in the back of her like 70s era subway graffiti yeah. in the back of her photos right but it doesn't seem like she ever really photographed that graffiti with the same interest that she photographed the kids chalk drawings yeah that's interesting i wonder if it's because she was at a a younger age when the chalk drawings were happening in the 30s and then I mean they're much more like innocent just objectively. Yeah. By the 70s she was in her 50s and 60s and so maybe that's not that's not the time that old white ladies like graffiti. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or either they really like it or they <laughs> Yeah. or they're ready to get mad about it. Right. I also don't recognize any of the graffiti in it. Like my like knowledge of New York City graffiti starts more in the early 80s and it and okay. mid 80s and it does in the 70s. Right, yeah. But like there it's like legit like ink on the inside of the train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but yeah, I just thought that was really interesting because it, it kind of she's sort of chronicling like the early days of uh of street graffiti in a way in New York. And just to make a slight historical point about graffiti, like it had an evolution to it. Mm-hmm. So people would like spray paint tags and then they started outlawing the tags and then putting dimension on the outlines. Like there's a, like there's a whole evolution to how it be like, it's not like people just like filled things in and made giant, um, masterpiece artworks right away. Right. Yeah. Like or, there was more pop art reference than like the early years too. So, okay. 
Yeah. Well, also that makes me think of Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat, when he first started his, his name was Samo and he would write, that was probably in chalk or no, some graffiti. I, I, think, I think he used a, like an oil bar. Oh, right. Okay. That's which right. Is what he would have used in the studio a lot too. Yeah. But he would write sort of these um, sayings or almost poetical things and, and sign his name as Samo, S-A-M-O. I dispute Basquiat's street cred. Why do you say that? Because I have a feeling it, it's, it, well, it's like, it's interesting because like the way that culture and criticism talks about him, he's like in the street art element, but like he doesn't, his like his Venn diagram circle has very little overlap for the other graffiti that was being made at the time that he's doing this. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like there's like real concept, highbrow, not not highbrow. There's like people are really pushing graffiti forward in the eighties. And like the way Samo writes it is like, has, has very little conversation with any of the, yeah. The active graffiti art that's getting made. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just those, chalk drawings and, and things that people would write on chalk in these Helen Levitt photos kind of reminded me of that. You know, it's like if you, if you had a tag and you went and tagged some bathrooms and a couple doorways along where everyone went, the people who knew you would be like, Oh, I saw your tag. Okay. But then graffiti writers wouldn't be like, you got up. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of more the let me hate on it angle. Yeah. He wasn't climbing <laughs> uh, like subways. Or, you can go or do every stuff. mailbox from, <laughs> from 14th street to 86th street yeah, yeah you know like he like tagged the doorway where he was getting high right and then like the people who also got high with him or knew about him saw him and then it perpet i mean it works to perpetuate the the folklore of him as a mm. person yeah yeah uh, sorry that's my like <laughs> no no it's interesting I, I never thought of it from from that point of view but um, like I said, those Helen Levitt photographs kind of reminded me of some of the, the and, stuff that, that And that's like one write. of the reasons that like graffiti writers kind of don't like Kenny Scarf. You know, like who's like a Warhol proximity person who had a lot of street art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's like borrowing from the graffiti world and then like kind of making it his own fine art world. Got, yeah. But yeah. like doesn't have any real super application to the graffiti world. Yeah. Sorry. Tangent. No, but... um. I, I was actually just looking at some more of her, her photographs in the 70s and the 80s. One of my favorite photos was taken in 1980, and it was in color. Most of her famous work is black and white, but it's the one um, of the, the girl. It's a, a little girl who's looking underneath a car, and you just see, like, the back of this green sort of muscle car and this girls crouched down underneath it and the the name of it the title is new york 1980 spider girl because it, it kind of looks like her arms and legs are, are long you don't see her face you just see the top of her head and her hair comic books were a lot more cutting edge than <laughs> right yeah they were they like yeah. offer, offered some counterculture and um yeah it's just the composition of this and again we talked about uh, Cartier Brisson and the decisive moment, but her being able to capture her right at this exact moment in this, the way she's looking underneath the car is just perfect. Her, her body language and her positioning. Uh, it, it's really, really unique when you look at it. It was interesting too, because like it's a color image and she's known, she's done a lot of black and white stuff too. Yeah. It's a dynamic photo. It's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah, her her graphic decisions work in it, right? I mean, I'm gonna be honest. Like, th- there's a, a Volkswagen bug, a Volkswagen buggy in the back. Yeah, and there's like a millimeter of window on it that just is so distracting to me. But like, that's my own personal aesthetic decision. Do you see what I mean? Oh, the way the it's sliver. Yeah, of, like, yeah. I see. What you're I would have given more. Sorry, I'm like aesthetically critiquing a Helen Levitt cover photo, but like, yeah, it's a dope photo. Yeah. There's like there's like mystery to it too. These are some of her more successful images when there's like this sort of like dynamic, um, formal quality to the subjects in them. Mm-hmm. Like they're still people, but they like kind of have like a promorph anthropomorphized. Like it's almost like it's like a, making it seem almost like an interesting object within a person. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then like when she has people in the shadows and the backgrounds of photos sometimes too, mm. like there's usually like a lot of depth going on to her images. Yeah. Well, like, actually it's not, it's not just the foreground. Right. Yeah. Speaking of mystery, uh, one of my favorite images, it's of, uh, children in masks and it looks like they're on a stoop of a, a New York apartment. And then there's like an older woman who looks very tired that's sitting next to him. This is in 1948. And the the mask that children wore in my, 1948, it looks like Ooh, Halloween. It looks spooky. creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the mask back then looked really creepy. I mean, it almost looks like a like um, an FSA photograph. I guess it's a similar time period, right? No, it's a, it's 1948. 1948, yeah. Uh, depression was like the 20s. Yeah. 30s. Um, but but yeah, this one again. There's mystery to it. The only person's face you see is the older woman who photographs who looks a lot really of tired. families in front of their like ramshackle houses. Are you thinking of Dorothy Lange? Dorothy Lange. Yeah, that was like the I was going to say Bowl. Margaret Burke White, but that's yeah, I think I another, another um, depression era photographer. Yeah, um, right. It's got some Dorothy Lange. I mean, okay, those I can kind of see that. Have been around a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you would have seen them because the government funded them and would want them around. Right. Which is one of the reasons photography exists that way. If the government started funding photography right now, we'd see a lot more photography around, for better or worse. Yeah, but I wonder, you know, because we talked about, you know, Gordon Parks doing government-funded photography and Dorothea Lang and Walker Evans did it as well. I mean, this this country's culture was built on government-funded culture. Yeah. Like, it's not like... I mean, like, yes, D- Diego Rivera did some giant murals for, like, the oil magnets. But, right. like... But you know, I'm like just wondering... That FSA stuff, like, really enriched American culture. Yeah, if there's government-funded photography today, what would it look like? And how much freedom would the oh, artists have? complicated. Yeah. So, um, Gordon Parks took some really famous photographs of people in Harlem on their stoops, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a like picturing street life in like these like gatherings of people is a pretty important part of photography at this moment. Yeah. yeah, and also if we're traveling back in time and and putting ourselves in the shoes of someone who's, you know, in the thirties and forties and what documentary photography is. It's kind of, it's still in its infancy in a way, as far as it being taken seriously as a form of art, I would say. Right. Cause like Brisson and Evans are like kind of the predate, right. Mm-hmm. Or like the precursor to her. And like, yeah. she worked with them. This happened a lot where like, I don't think it happens that much anymore, but there's not as much of like a American photo art practice to culture. But like the person who taught me how to my intro photo teacher at undergrad, I went to liberal arts undergrad, uh, had worked with minor white who had worked with Ansel Adams. Wow. So I was like getting taught how to print the way Ansel Adams imprinted. Wow. Not an effective way for me to approach photography. Yeah. <laughs> at, at 18, 19 years old, like a little boring, and mm-hmm. I probably would have succeeded in that. But, but an interesting, like, there's this lineage to shit. Yeah. That, like, we're not quite, you know, like, I know someone who worked with, with Robert Frank. But, like, there isn't as much of an art practice for that person to make art and then someone to work with them. Well, yeah, I was just thinking about that because when we talked about um, Joel Meyerowitz first getting a photography, he ran into Henri Cartier-Bresson and, and became such friends a good with story. him. Yeah. And, and then Helen Levitt met him through this photography league and then met Walker Evans and she met both Henri Cartier-Bresson and Walker Evans shortly after she decided to take photography seriously. And it seems like back then it was easier to strike up a a friendship or a working relationship with these legendary photographers. And I wonder if it's because again, that type of, art photography was in its infancy and so there are only a few people around and they were just more than willing to meet other people and help um i I mean i think that must be part of it there's a lot of need for photography right now too Mm. or maybe like maybe when the 70s happened there's a lot of need for it yeah like in the 40s not so much because like thinking about all the public 
space stuff, it's like, this is pre-television. Right. Like, rich people had television in the 50s. Yeah. You know, like, in the 40s, there's no one's having really a television, except maybe a couple public spaces. So everyone's got radio. There's no air conditioning. Yeah. You know, there's probably even mild refrigeration, depending on, like, how big of a family you have or how often you go to the grocery store. So, like, everyone's outside. Yeah, actually, that was a quote I found from her where she said, you know, earlier, like you were saying, everyone was out in the street. There's no air conditioning. And so you'd see a lot more children playing out in the street. And then later in her life, I guess, probably in the 80s and 90s, she lamented and said, yeah, everyone's inside watching television. When, like, before the um, suburban flight of of most urban areas in mm-hmm. America like children were, were just hung out in the street all the time yeah and like were kind of supervised by like the general public right yeah you know like Neighbors. if something really went bad one happened someone probably told their parents about it right or yeah the shopkeeper came out and said <laughs> you know don't throw that yeah <laughs> the garbage can at that other kid right you know? yeah um i just I was just thinking about, all right, so there's all this opportunity to photograph people and children out in the streets. And then she's become friends with these other photographers who she talks with and works with. So that helps to, um, you know, obviously her art practice is going to be affected by these friendships. But today I was just trying to think, um, Again, she was in New York City, so that's going to make it easier for her to meet those types of people. But today, if, you, if you're if you in New York, I think if you know like what places to go to, you could sort of run into those types of photographers. But, I mean, now, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think um, it's as easy to build that type of uh, community when you're first starting out. Um, you mean to like be connected to older photographers? Yeah, yeah. Like that, yeah. Yeah, older photographers who have made a, a big name for themselves. Yeah, there's not so much of a consolidated like photo yeah. community here. And I think part of that is just because, again, back then in the 30s and 40s and, and, and even the 70s, that type of photography was only practiced by a few people. Um, most people who are doing photography in a serious way were like commercial photographers or doing landscapes or something. Yeah, yeah. So I think because it was such a small knit group, they all wanted to encourage each other. That's my theory. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Whereas now, like everyone's kind of doing that type of photography. And then, of course, with digital, you got even more photographers who were just roaming around taking photos. So it's not as special. And, and older people who are in a position of prominence in the photography world, they're probably not all that, you know, interested in. Well, also a lot of them have taught. So like, that's true. That's, that's a the great place point. where they want yeah. to interact and educate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there aren't photo schools going on at this point. Yeah. So yeah. Like, I think maybe like culture just moved it to, but no, I agree with your deduction too. And it's slightly frustrating a little bit. Mm hmm. Like, ICP should be, like, an incredible center for photography in the city. Instead, it's a bookstore and a museum and a school. Yeah. Which are, all, which are three great things for it. Right. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've got more, <laughs> more problems than solutions, but. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that I found out was uh, she often used a right angle finder on her camera so it's a like an external viewfinder that you can attach to your camera so that when you're looking through it doesn't necessarily look like you're you're looking directly at the subject right it's like an eyepiece attachment that fits on to what's that piece of the camera called the viewfinder that's what i think of it yeah so there's a name for like just external viewfinder the mount. but there's a name for the thing that you slide the apparatus onto whatever mm-hmm. um and uh right it's like almost like a telescope or submarine yeah yeah submarine <laughs> telescope <laughs> right. like viewing apparatus that you like slide onto the eyepiece and then you can look at you can hold the camera towards what you want and 
look at it from a uh, 90 degrees from right. the side. Yeah. But I bring that up because uh, someone who knew her and was doing a lecture about her said that and that a lot of the time she used that because she could get a direct photo of someone without staring at them. Right. And she could get close to them. making eye contact with exactly, them. Exactly. Yeah. And of course she has a few photographs where the people are aware of the lens and are looking directly in it. But, um, but yeah, that was really interesting because I really hadn't heard of anyone using that for their. Cause it's not like the lens is a 90 degree thing where you yeah. like stick it around a corner. <laughs> that would be great. Like <laughs> it's just like, you're not staring at them. Yeah. Um, but it, it looks almost like a piece that you would, a viewfinder that you would put on top of a Hasselblad or like, a, right. Exactly. Like a medium format. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I thought that was a, an interesting workaround for it, her. It also probably helped her focus better. Although if she's shooting with a, like a, a thousand rolls in, she's probably not. Yeah. That much. <laughs> yeah. Um, she knows her distance, but her, her street foot, well, her street photography, it's very New York. However, I found photos she took in Mexico city. Really interesting. I believe she went on a trip with the author, James Agee, who ended up during the introduction to her book that came out in the sixties. But anyway, it was like James photographers Agee. take trips with writers. Yeah. Do you know James Agee and his wife. Something I complain about is I wish there was more of a resource that connected photographers, curators and writers together. In grad school, I was constantly frustrated that like there wasn't a mixer between us and like the design grad school. Hmm. Like, why aren't we pairing these people together to work together? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they need things to design. We want things designed. Right. Yeah. <coughs> that is a great idea. Yeah. And I feel like now it's easy just to reach out on social media to people that are uh, like designers or writers. So, um, so maybe that like right now, at least that's why there isn't that type of thing. Residencies, residencies do this, but it'd be great if like, maybe this is just like a European dream I'm living, but like where if American like, people wanted to schedule trips together to be able to make work more. Yeah. I mean, that would photographers be Photographers cool. do it with yeah. each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. So you're saying like photographers and writers and designers going on trips together to, or just like more active collaboration. I, mm-hmm. don't, yeah. I think more the the writer and the photographer right. going together and yeah, you know, big up to the designer, but like, are they going to lay some stuff out? Yeah. Well, also I know, now a lot of people, you know, are encouraged to design their own stuff because um, uh, there's a, there are photographers that might use InDesign to design their own book, right. that program. So uh, just because of the, the pro- programs now are much more user-friendly for design than they've ever been in the past. Um, but, yeah, photographers and, and writers collaborating, that would be great. Um, but uh, actually what I was going to say the is photographer is going to get ditched and they'll hire a filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> but to be my guess. Oh, yeah. we, we got ourselves to a place. So now we're going to let you go and get someone who does moving. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to say is her photographs in Mexico city, 1941 are, are just like her photographs of New York city. She's capturing busy working class areas and, and both of them and, and capturing those neighborhoods. And, um, I, Again, we've talked about this since our early episodes of the podcast where photographers will travel and um, I'm showing Stephen some of the, the Mexico City, excuse me, showing Stephen some of the Mexico City photographs, but where photographers will travel and they still have that signature style no matter where they are. She's known for New York, but... Um, these photos of, of Mexico city definitely feel like Helen Levitt photos. Uh, it's just the, the architecture isn't the same as New York, but the, um, are they mostly square? Um, wait, if you go the other way, there are more photos. I don't remember them mostly being square. I feel like they were horizontal, like rectangular. I don't know, man, this first, Im- this first image is totally square. Yeah. There's a lot of cropping going on. Possibly, yeah. But um, these photos, if you just look up Helen Levitt, Mexico City, you'll see the ones that we're talking about 
and you see like adults and children on the street and they're filling up the frame and the streets look very busy and there's a lot of movement and conversation going on. But it it, feel, it has that New York energy, even though it's Mexico City. Right, and still got her like her like sensitivity. Yeah. To like people interacting. Right. And um, you know, again, this is nineteen forty one, so we've got a white woman in the thirties and forties documenting children in New York from all backgrounds playing together. And then documenting people in Mexico in a very humanizing way, as opposed to, I think other photographers or artists would go to Mexico in 1940 and really be all about like, like trying to document indigenous people or, or indigenous artwork or something of that since, but she kind of, it's sort of a, a modern um, lens on Mexico City from her perspective at that time. Yeah, and even though she photographs like people who are destitute or like are kind of in the almost bottom out section of life, like it doesn't, f- like I understand like how in concept it's exploitive. Or people could give that critique, but like there's a sensitivity to it that I think like kind of connects us to, and it's like one of the elements of the street. You know, there's happy kids playing. It's yeah, just like smack addicts passed out. Right. Yeah. She's not using photography to point out like, oh, look at how terrible the situation is that these people live in. Right. With it's not as like a sensational like voyeuristicness to it. Yeah. It's it, there's like a human quality to them that I find makes me connect with them more yeah. than l- looks at them as like an other. Right. Yeah. And it's very forward thinking for that time period. Um, that, that's one of the things that I come away with when I, I look at her work because I'll see the work and I'll, I'll look at the date and I'm like, wait, there's no way that was the 1930s or the 1940s. Um, yeah. They feel very contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And, and what she the, the types of people she chose to photograph and the way she's photographing, it feels like, like a, 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 a sort of, um, since that, um, or, um, it feels like a sensitivity that would only exist after the civil rights movement right, okay. in the sixties in a way to me. Um, but this, this right. was I her mean, in like, the thirties and forties. This is the Northeast. True. You know, with lots of different immigrant cultures from... Yeah. Like, she's probably Eastern European Jewish. Yeah, Jewish, Russian uh, parents, yeah. So, I mean, that has something to do with... I mean, people can be intolerant as well. Right, right. In their own own way, for sure, but like... Yeah. But, no, you have a good point. It's coming from that perspective, which is probably why she's more sensitive to um, displaying someone who's, like, an ethnic minority richard price who wrote clockers and is one of the writers Mm -hmm. on the wire um talks about growing up in new york city and like sort of the racial dynamics of small neighborhood stuff right yeah people would tease each other but like we were all new yorkers yeah we're also kids at the time too right yeah yeah it's a different um yeah speaking of that uh Emily Schwenk, shout out to her. She's one of the first people when we were like last summer, when we were talking about uh, starting a podcast and uh, Richard Price is like her uncle, actually. Oh, uh, right, right. Yeah, I remember <laughs> we, we were having a discussion about. Oh, right. Where we met someone who's Richard Price's. Yeah. Right, and, right. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'll listen to you guys podcast when it comes out. <laughs> um, but anyway, so one of the things that I wanted to talk more about is why do you think there aren't as many women who are involved in like street photography? I don't know. Yeah. I mean like there's probably two elements to it. There's like the who took pictures and the who got pictures published. Okay. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess to make a generalization, it's more of a male photographer orient. There's more men in the practice than there are women. Right. But I mean, street photography specifically, it feels like there are less women doing that as opposed to like portrait photography or commercial photography or landscapes. Okay, but, but like Vivian Meyer and Helen Levitt, mm-hmm. like are two 
grandmothers of yeah of of public photo of of street photography yeah Deanne Arbus yeah 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 I mean like and it doesn't feel like they were championed forward to balance the male right you know like they're all very excellent like original right. like interesting photographers yeah well I, I think like who doesn't who, who can forget a Diane Diane Arbus photo? yeah you know I, unfortunately I can forget a Helen Levitt photo right no disrespect Helen Levitt but like yeah, well, I think one of the things is you talked about it earlier, you know, um, a woman taking photographs of children on the street, she's going to f- feel less threatening to those children or less threatening to anybody, really. Right, but there's certainly like a, you know, especially at this time, there's going to be an aggressive male presence in the street. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was thinking. It's kind of a double-edged sword because as a woman, you, you, you might feel more danger than a man would who's going around taking photographs of strangers. But on the other hand, you might get people to open up more or feel like less uh, sort of exploited in a, in a way if, if you're a woman taking photographs of someone. Um, I feel like if you grew it like gender, whatever gender wise, like if you grew up in New York City in the 40s and you didn't have enough privilege to like keep you away from outside. Mm-hmm. you probably were pretty comfortable walking around. You know, like, and like people trade information a lot more these days. Yeah. You know, they're like, don't walk on that block. Right. You know, like there'll be places that are kind of off limits. So. Yeah. But then again, today, there are just cameras everywhere. Like literal. Yeah, but that doesn't stop the public space from, I, I mean, it, it offers like uh some retribution to the bad actors, but yeah. it obviously doesn't stop people from, yeah, from the, you know from public being potentially dangerous when it is. But I was just thinking today in New York in broad daylight, if someone wanted to walk around with a camera and take photographs, I feel like they they might feel safer than they mm, would okay. a few decades ago. Right, that's true. Yeah, um, but I was just thinking, like you know, um, what do you think the photography community? could do to encourage more women to get into street photography Um, because yeah it does feel like a a specifically male space i wonder if there's like um any grants that are aimed towards women in documentary photography okay yeah that's that's pretty good idea specific and niche but yeah should be the helen levitt grant yeah yeah that would be really cool she's got to have like a foundation or or something yeah i I wonder about that because um Again, if you're if you're really into photography, especially street documentary photography, you, you know her name. But um, I'm just wondering if there are like grants or foundations with her name on it, or, or what her family did with her legacy afterwards. So, because um, I was just looking around to find as much information as I could on her, but I, I really you know, didn't see any of that type of stuff. Um, What's a company that makes chalk? <laughs> that makes chalk. Yeah. These days, who knows? Maybe Crayola. <laughs> Crayola, of course. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Um, the Crayola, Helen Levitt. I wonder. Photography th- <laughs> grant for, for female yeah. documentary photographers. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I just, I would encourage people to, seek out her work the, the little book that i have um it's called helen levitt and it's a photo file and it's um it, it's kind of a it's a small thin book but in a way it's comprehensive because it, it has like her new york work and it's stuff like a soft cover City. booklet that's like yeah zine size pretty much exactly and her Half color work by 11. her color work is mixed in here as well um it's a nice booklet yeah, it's really nice. It's a great way to look at photography. And um, we were, it, it's also a great way to look at like New York City during that time and, and how it's changed. Um, and I found that. Yeah, hot dogs are no longer 40 cents. <laughs> right. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier before the podcast, how it's advertising hot dogs being 40 cents in the 1970s and just wondering 
all right, well, what was the also what break? happened to hot dog stands? Yeah, <laughs> like why aren't they allowed below 40, 34th Street? Yeah, if you come to New York, you don't really see that a lot, but um, they used to be everywhere, right? Yeah, I, I wonder, like you said, it's probably food trucks moving them out, but also, I just think people are probably more health conscious now where they're not eating hot dogs as often boiled hot dog (laughs) yeah yeah with some cold cold bread (laughs) right so i I think that might be a reason as well um but but yeah she she really documents new york during her her time living in especially the the 40s through the 70s and her color photographs are really interesting because there aren't many of them and they're kind of muted in a way but um yeah it's I don't know. I, I still feel like her work is overlooked, even though, again, if you're really into photography, you, you might know her. But that was one of the motivations for doing a podcast on her, because um, my main thing was the photographs were good, but also her sensibility seemed ahead of its time. That's kind of what I came up with. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah. Yeah.